All right, everybody, welcome to our latest Between the Races podcast on the MX Vice Network. Thank you, everyone, for listening and supporting the site. We really appreciate it. We'd firstly like to thank our sponsors in Fly Racing, Monster Energy, Fox, Parts Europe, Scott, Bell Helmets, Acherbys, AS3 Performance, Kawasaki UK, KTM UK, O'Neill, and of course, even Strokes for all their incredible support. As without them, none of this would be possible. All right, for this episode, we have a very special guest, a man who's an absolute legend and hero of the sport, who's seen and done it all. Welcome, Jeff Emick, to the pod. Thank you very much for joining us, mate, and thanks for taking the time. How's life? Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, um, great to be on. I want to know who sells your sponsorship. That dude needs a bonus. That was a good list of people supporting this this uh, podcast. I know that money's not not easy to get. Trust me. And then yeah, I read right. a nice segue for James Burfield, the boss of MX Vice. How are you, mate? And there's a big question for you straight off the bat. Yeah, good, good. Thanks, uh, Ed. Nice to see you again, Jeff. As well, it's been uh, it's been in a, what two weeks, two weeks, three weeks, something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. We're really lucky this year with uh, um, you know people supporting the the podcast and supporting the um, the website. So, yeah, big shout out to those guys. It's been uh, it's been a tough year all around. I think everybody's feeling the pinch um, for throughout the industry and and just yeah. You know, I don't know what it's like in the US at the moment, Jeff, but in the UK um there's a there's a lot of uh households which are feeling the pinch from uh the government's uh taking all our money What's yeah i'm like not gonna get all political straight away but certainly the u.s the leadership in america uh i'm not in uh, agreement with how things are being ran here and i know that that has a a, a trickle effect or a, a wave that comes out um across uh, the world and all I can do as an American is apologize uh, and hopefully we can correct this uh, in a couple of years yeah, or well, hopefully less than a year we'll see yeah from a UK point of view we, we, we're we going to be apologizing for a lot longer than that um, <laughs> right <laughs> shit at the moment but um, yeah we're, we're really so crazy though the world is so crazy and that's that's why you know I do a lot of business around the world of global brands and work with global companies and um it's just such a crazy world and i tell my kids that my kids are 15 and 19 my son jagger's 15 my daughter presley's 19 i'm like this isn't how things are supposed to be like and so the and, and it's crazy because it starts to affect i mean we we do our work inside of the motocross industry um and yet these these things affect economies globally uh, and it's just such a weird, it's such a weird time. It's so unpredictable. So all the sponsors that are supporting this podcast, thank you. We really appreciate it. Yeah, touche. Um, Jeff, on, on that note, that, that sort of, I know Ed's got, a, a you know, Ed's been doing some digging. He's got a load of questions for you. But Oh boy, things, here we go. Uh, <laughs> one of the things which intrigued me when we were talking, um, you know, at Farley was uh, just your, um, just your kind of insights in, into it to what you're doing, because since you've kind of retired as a writer, you you obviously write in quite a bit uh, more than than usual, but also just the business side of it, you, you seem to be pretty hands on. Um, I mean, some of the companies you're working with, um, the ones which come up have obviously ODI Grips, um, yeah. MX Lock. Um, I know that you're working with Wee Big at the moment because we've seen the uh, the different types of kit. What we I want to talk to you about a little bit later, but um from from your point of view is that something that really interests you the business side of motocross well yeah and you uh 
you know, it's interesting when, when I uh, fractured my spine and, and subsequently uh, retired from uh, professional racing, uh, I, I tell the story every now and then that I just bought a new house. And so now here I am fresh out of the hospital, back brace on, you know, career is going to be over. Like this is a bad deal. And, um, I, I couldn't get up and down the stairs. And so they, they had like a, oh, like a bed that they put in the living room, but there were, there was no furniture in the house. There was no window covering like the house. I hadn't done anything to it. I had the audio video stuff set up. So I had a kick-ass television and stereo system and that was it. And so you've got the bed with the electric, you know, uh, thing to raise you up. And David Bailey calls me one night and I still remember it like yesterday. Cause I remember the moonlight coming through, uh, the window and I'm laying there just like, man, David, what am I going to do? And he says, look, you know, he, his situation was much different than mine, but he says, look, we, we have to stop sometime. And for you, if you choose this, this can be your bridge out of racing as a professional, It's much different than riding and racing as a professional. They're two different things, right? The dedication level, the risk level, uh, everything. And, and, and I still remember him telling me like, you know, you'll find something else to do. You're 30 years old. Like, there's still a lot of life to lead um and you it it may not be the first thing which my first thing was having the race team oh this is great money's free money's coming in like crazy and then the money stops oh shit this race team's costing me fifty thousand bucks to close the doors this isn't any fun and then i did a little bit of broadcasting and and little bits and bobs along the way and so i guess it just as a racer you're so locked in your entire life that's all you've done and you it's really hard to see what the next thing is well now i realize that there have been dozens of opportunities that that have come my way and i you can read a lot of self-help books you can uh you know hire tony robbins to you know do some some coaching with you and I found that whenever I try to force force things, like I don't like where this situation is or whatever this situation, um, when I force it, I just get frustrated and the results don't come. And so I'm more of a like fate and destiny type of person. Uh, and I know Tony Robbins would probably tell me I'm full of shit and <laughs> you're not as productive as you need to be. And But these opportunities come my way and for me it, it a lot of it has to do with being on the motorcycle and i still think of myself as a motorcycle racer even though i don't, don't race as a professional and hadn't raced uh really done a lot of racing lately but even my broadcasting i'm there because i'm a motorcycle racer that is a, that is broadcasting uh instead of a broadcaster that happened to motorcycle race be a be a be a motorcycle racer and so at this age and this level and i certainly have experience with helping build other brands and been compensated well don't get me wrong learned a lot have a lot of connections i understand business from the retail side all the way to the manufacturing side 
And so with some of these new partnerships with Viral Brand Goggles uh, and We Big Moto, um, what I'm doing with MX Locker now, uh, um, and then my products with ODI, I think that I really have something valuable to bring um, in in so many different ways and so many different facets. And so, you know, I, I it was really interesting. I, I wrote this this thing down, and and this was just a pertaining to pertaining to business. But um, when we lost Ken Block earlier this year, and I went to uh, to his uh, celebration of life, essentially. Uh, the the whole day was um, just so memorable and so many great people, successful people, and and the impact that that he had on his family and business and everything. And I and I just from being around that whole experience, I I I, I put it in my phone in my notes. I said, "You got to be better. You got to be better. Like you can do things better." And so, um. Just I guess every week I'm trying to add to the brands that I've partnered with um, to to help them be better and help them grow. And it's kind of this like, you know, what would Jesus do? What would Ken do? You know, that's kind of the thought. If I was Ken Block in this situation, what would I do? So it could be because he was just brilliant that way. And I, I certainly uh, don't make a, a, a an even comparison to – to his talents that way, but it's certainly he's his spirit uh, and his way of doing business is something that's inside of me. And that I, I think about, okay, I need to attach that to what I'm doing in business. Yeah, that's very cool. I mean, I mean, you know, to Tony Robbins and the others will be proud to hear that Jeff, because, you know, sometimes it's about taking um, those, those kind of positives and aspects from what, how people do their business and in, in, in what's, you know, effective for them. Sometimes, you know, you can learn quite a lot from the people around you. Um, yeah. I always, I always uh, struggle when I work on my own. I enjoy working with people because once you're working with, you know, people and you have a team, then you can bounce ideas off each other. And you know, it's like when I, when I speak to other people within the industry, I'm a bit like a sponge. So I kind of learn as I, as I go along. I've learned quite a lot on digital, but the motocross industry is obviously forever changing. And uh, I guess you've seen a massive difference from from when you were in your, uh, you know, the year before your injury in your prime um, to, to where you are now, like the, the, how social media has completely changed the game. Um, you know, yeah. the riders can't escape anything, can they? Everything, like when you look at the Lawrence brothers or, or Deegan's, you know, even Chad with his family. I mean, everything's out there on YouTube, on social media. Everybody's got a... a, a you know, knows more sometimes more about your life than than that your family members. <laughs> yeah, and it and it's interesting. Um, there's been such a such a transition because there's are so many great media uh, content creators out there where the the sort of quote media landscape has changed from you know it used to be your magazines and then you do some media with the with the uh, with the race promoter and now there's so many different outlets and you become your own creator um and there's so much of it and everyone's trying to catch the attention of of every person that they can and sometimes i, I, I for some reason i feel like it's getting better now but like three or four years ago 
I'm like, there's so much content with these athletes. I don't feel like I know any of them any better than I did before I watched the content. And um, I think one, when I look back for, for us, the real, the real door that opened was when Krusty Demons of Dirt came to my house to film us riding Z50s. And you kind of seen beyond the track for the first time. And then, you, you know, you had Krusty's, you had Fox and Terra Firma, you had Moto Triple X and Full Power Trip and like all these people, hey, hey, do you want to go film? You want to go film? Yeah. And then, so people that, people got a chance to see pro riders away from the racetrack and keep in mind the broadcast coverage was pretty crappy then compared to now too. you know, the actual race coverage. Um, but then these, you know, 10 years ago, there was a lot of content, but everything was for the top guys. It was very curated and very like specific. I'm not that way. I'm just not built that way. Like sometimes I guys that I know, uh whether it's my generation or other ones and i see this stuff and i'm just kind of like that's not super authentic and if if you open yourself up to be authentic and to fail and to be embarrassed or to be like human sorry you know the activities of daily living we all do it the same like you're no different than you know, a champion supercross racer is no different than the average guy. You know what I mean? And so I, I think that maybe that's where my fan base, uh, what, how we connect is that um, I, I just, I'm very humble that way. Certainly other ways where I'm quite the asshole and I can be arrogant at times, but, but I think in certain ways, I'm just kind of an open book. Oh yeah, this is like like this thing that happened last week with Jet Lawrence and Ken Roxon. I could get really, uh, you know, I could have a strong opinion on that in certain ways. But sure. I watch some of the stuff, like interviews or certain things that I did, and I'm like, who is that guy? <laughs> like, holy shit! The 24 year old me was. Who do I think I? Who do I think I was at that point? It was my question. You know, the fifty-two-year-old me looks at the twenty-five-year-old me and would be like, "I just roll my eyes." Like, who? Who do you think you are again? Yeah. So, but I that's, that's I mean, that's you. That's you. Yeah, I think that's relevant to like all of us when we look back. I mean, I think of myself as you know, twenty-five, thinking I know everything about everything, and uh, you know. I can't take any advice off of anybody because I know better. And then I just look back now and just thinking, Oh my God, you have. No well, when you're a idea. kid, you don't know any. Yeah. When you're a kid, you don't know anything. Start to be a teenager. You're learning things. And so now you think, you know, stuff, right. 25. Yeah. You're like, yeah, yeah, man. I am this world's black and white. Start to get in your thirties. Ooh, starts to get a little gray, <laughs> you know, metaphorically and things start to get a little gray you get through your forties and you're like, wow. Yeah. Life isn't quite like I thought and you people lie, cheat, steal all these other things. And the great thing you get to be where I'm at. You just don't give a shit anymore. You really don't. It's okay. It's fine. Yeah, it's, it's fine. fine. The, Sorry, only, the only thing like, so in life, that's where I'm at. But, but when I'm a broadcaster for world supercross, my, my job is to have a strong opinion. And what's good, I think is that I'm getting better at 
not giving a shit if the athlete or the team or the situation like I'm paid for my opinion, whether anyone likes it or not, including the promoter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. That world yeah. supercross, obviously the commentary you guys do the series, you feel like the SMX is, you know, that hasn't gone down a lot of people's eyes that well. I think it's been quite good, but there's obviously going to be teething issues. And I guess you feel like the fans and the sport have been quite forgiving with that, but with world supercross, there's been a lot of piling on and, you know, you feel like coming with criticism is quite aggressive. I guess you would see it firsthand, mate. So I just say need time. They're going to have yeah. issues like SMX has and like WSX has, and that's on a, that's such a bigger scale trying to take it to the world. And I guess it's really cool to see that they got someone like you on the commentary, mate. So tell us a little bit about that deal. And I guess it's a pretty hard thing to do because, like you said, you've got to get to a point where you don't give a shit because you're being a commentator. You need to be brave. You have convictions in what you're saying and make sort of hard, snappy calls at the heat of the moment, which you don't really have a lot of time to reflect on. And, yeah, commentators deserve respect for getting out of their comfort zone. And I guess that's a place where you probably experienced a lot of growth too, mate. So just tell us a little bit about the World Supercross and just your broadcasting career as a whole because it's pretty cool achieving what you've you've done with it all, mate. You must be pretty proud of it, I guess, when you grab a second to look back. Yeah, I mean, when Ralph Shaheen and I first started doing Supercross in America, we kind of set a goal of doing 10 years together. If we could do 10 years, that'd be just amazing. Uh, I did 12, he did uh, 15 um, cause he started, uh, year before I did and did some pro motocross in there for a lot of years and different bits and bobs, um, some Grand Prix races, joined the broadcast with Paul Malin, uh, motocross of nations, things like that. And now we've moved on to world supercross. Um, obviously, uh, there's been some things on the business side that have hindered the amount of races that we've done and. And um, it's it's difficult for everyone because we're trying to get this new championship, uh, get some momentum going. Um, and there's a lot of comparisons between the racing in America and this new world Supercross championship with Adam Bailey and Supercross Global and the, and the team from Australia. And, um, you know, there's been some hurdles, especially here lately, some things that everyone's going to have to work through. But just remember, going global is a much different challenge and we've only done three races okay supercross in america started in 1974 and hasn't stopped so it's it's pretty hard to um to to not uh you know you understand that this is a very new entity and a new product and a lot of moving uh, parts to it that are much different, like the scale of this and how getting these races, you know, promoted and done globally and, and all that is much, much different. And so, um, it, yeah, it's a, it's a bummer that we've lost some races this year again. Um, um, and, but I believe in the product and what we're doing. Um, in addition to that, uh, everybody knows Ralph Shaheen and I are super close. We love working together. I mean, even if it wasn't calling supercross or motocross races, if we were doing swamp buggies or tractor poles or F1 or, you know, lawn motor races, we would probably have a great time doing it. Uh, and then, of course, Kristen Beat, who is our uh, eyes and ears, and she's our trackside reporter, he could literally do anything. And um, and so we, we enjoy being around each other, and we have a lot of fun with it. And that chemistry is so hard to 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 really get together and when you have it you you want to keep that 
keep that group going. And um, not sure if you remember, uh, but from the round one that we did in Birmingham, uh, United Kingdom earlier this year, during our uh, um, uh, during our qualifying show, Kristen slipped and fell on the, there was this big like ramp going into the stadium and she was standing there talking to some of the riders and she slipped and fell and we actually got it on camera. I think it was only one angle and that, and she was like, like legitimately like bruised up, like, like it hurt, like her hip was really sore, but we, we all, Ralph's brilliant at this. He's the best to lead this, but the chemistry that we had together, we actually replayed it in the stadium and Ralph and I did commentary over it and we all got a good laugh out of it. And she's a great sport about it. And it's that because the serious stuff is going to be easy to come by, but then you, you have to have the entertainment value and the humor and some, some witty comments and things that put the listener or the viewer in that case, like back on their heels a little bit. And then you have to give them the insight you have to relay the energy and the excitement of what's happening inside of the stadium in this live event, along with all the data and things that, that come along with it, with results and what to look for and all that. And so when you put together a good team, um, you, you got to keep them together. And that's, that's, it's a, you know, I, I feel really thankful that I'm a part of that team uh, because we do enjoy being around each other and that, hopefully translates into the broadcast and makes that entertainment value higher. Yeah, I guess also, are you happy with, I guess, the progress of World Supercross? There's definitely some strides being made. There's just announced that sort of change in the partnerships going on there, which they're people, very heavy hitters in the soccer world, which we both know and love. So it'd be really interesting to see how it pans out because they've got some really big plans and they're kind of dudes that don't really fail in what they do, really ambitious people. And I guess having someone like Adam there is, He's really cool. We haven't recently done a podcast with him. You just love the passion of the guy. He's so motivated yep. and he's open to, he knows there was stuff that wasn't right. And he's open to, you know, suggestions, open to fixing it. And even from the rounds last year, he made changes from round one, round two in that short amount of time. So a lot of respect for what he does. And, you know, it must be just an absolute logistical nightmare organizing it all and getting it all done. But the work, he knows the work is worth it to spread the word on Supercross because there's so many, what, 70% of bikes are sold, I guess, outside of the year. So there's so much room for growth, isn't there, mate? So I guess it must be pretty cool to be on that journey with him and spread the sport internationally and just try to improve the product and get people into it because that's a really key way to do it. Like we see with the soccer friendlies, they go, all the big teams go to America and Asia and they exploit these markets, Australia too. There's money to be made. There's, you know, the sport to be grown. There's so many positives attached to it, isn't there, mate? And I guess you're pretty excited about it. Yeah, well, there's 70% of off-road motorcycles are sold outside of the U.S. You know, uh, Adam and I were having a conversation and I said, hey, have you you seen that Bernie Ecclestone uh, documentary called Lucky? Uh, the Bernie Ecclestone from F1, if people don't know about it, check it out. It's this documentary that he started working on during uh, COVID. And you look at F1 now and you're just like, this is just the biggest machine. It's just incredible. But if you take it back to the early days, there were they were going race to race. And Bernie's like, yeah, if people don't show up to the race this weekend, this thing's done. And then they started like self-promoting, like the race team started self-promoting. And then eventually the, basically the, the short answer is Bernie was the guy that 
had the vision and the passion and the cojones to say, okay, I'll take the risk on to promote this and I'll do the organizing and I'll take the risk. And without a deep belief in what, where the sport could grow and the passion for it and the business sense and all these things, um, it F1 would, we wouldn't even be talking about it. Um, but, but probably single-handedly was the point person that, that trusted that F1 had something greater to give to the world in motorsports and entertainment and, and automobile development and all these other aspects of it. And I guess time will tell if Adam is that guy for uh, Dirtbug. So I, I believe that he is. And so, um, you know, it's like I said, with the business side of things and the financial backing, some of those things changing, um, it's certainly not uh, the perfect scenario that we all wanted this year. Um, but the fact that we're going to take World Supercross to Abu Dhabi and race in the Middle East and then back to Melbourne, which is a fantastic location, and then be able to build on that and then get be it back to work with in 2024 is something really, really exciting. I think, um, Ed, like in a podcast with Adam, when, you know, he said like kind of made mistakes and stuff, I think that's what makes in my eyes, you know, how, how do you improve? You have to understand what you can improve on. So like when I think of the 12 years of, of MX Vice, I just looking back, I want to cringe at some of the mistakes I've made financially and some of the decisions I've taken and, you know, and especially like getting to the, this last year. So I, 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 I think as as if I it's that hindsight thing. If I only knew now what I knew sort of three years ago, and I could have got all that money back, what I spent on 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 bad decisions and in different things and everything else. But I guess what Adam's got now is kind of a um, you know a, he's got that knowledge of the last couple of years of what to do and what not to do, and um, like you say, he's got two very very good partners who um, have got a finger on the pulse. Um, are going to look to him to under you know who who understands a business they understand um, about investment. So I think now he's got possibly all the tools and made some of the mistakes and learned from them to know where to go going forward. So I think now WSX is going to be in uh, in a healthy place going forward because they've had those I mean yeah years. Yep, yep. Um, I mean, we certainly hope so. But you read, you know, every business book by Donald Trump, by Richard Branson, by you, like you name it. Every, every one of these uber successful businessmen, you read these books and they talk about their experiences. Basically, every one of them says fail and fail often. It's like MX Spice should be a billion dollar company right now, all the mistakes you made, right? But, you, but it, uh, that's still, the, <laughs> and I'm just, that was, that was a joke, by the way. You was, that was no, a no. delayed it's, laugh. It's, it's so true. <laughs> well, and so, and, and what you have to get through your head, and I'm only relaying what I read and what I'm trying to learn, is that those mistakes are the education. Now, the failure is if you don't take that education, what you just learned, and then 
not repeat it or make the opposite decision to be successful. Um, and some, I mean, we, I, I don't know. My whole life, the hard lessons have been, I, I don't, nobody can tell me anything. It's like straight out of a country music song or something. Can't tell me anything. I'm going to do it my way and I'm going to fail and I'm going to learn the lesson the hard way. Like I am, and you know, it, it and that's where like the parenting thing comes in. Like you got to let your kids fail and, and th those failures teach the hard lessons. You just, hopefully it's not something so major that, that world supercross goes under or you lose a leg or something. You know what I mean? Sure. No, I think it's, yeah. uh, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things which are, they're going to come out of it. I, I kind of think that MX Vice is going to come out of this um, way better by making those mistakes. We've learned and you have to kind of mm -hmm. you know, move on and do that. And I guess um, speaking of making mistakes, Jeff, when you're going down the steps at Farley, I'm guessing that you're probably not going to do that again. Yeah. Yeah. I was just getting a little fed up. I was a little, uh, I was coming through the pack and some lappers. I totally revved that guy too. How much karma was dealt out? I revved on that son of a bitch at the top of the stair steppers hard. And then I passed him and then I was, and I was then stuck in between these massive hay belts. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that. I just got a little bit impatient. And uh, that one cost me, but I got lucky. I, I, you know, lucky that a the hay bales were there, and I wasn't in the creek or whatever this pond thing that was there. And lucky that I didn't get injured. So, you know, I backed her down a little bit the rest of the weekend. You're going to hey, be back next came... year, mate. And also, are you going to the Nations and ERNA? And I'd love your thoughts on the Team USA, the whole thing surrounding that. It'd be pretty interesting, mate, being there. Uh, no motocross of nations for me. Um, and yeah, I definitely would love to be back at, back at Farley again next year. I'm going to, I've been thinking about it. I'm going to build this, uh, this big ass plexiglass shield to go on the front of my bike. Like the entire thing is to be shielded. Um, cause the roost hurts there. And if you don't start first, like you're in trouble. Yeah. If you didn't get that whole shot at Farley, then you are in trouble. Um, oh, yeah. but there was one person who did come off even worse than you, which was Jamie Dobb. So as much as you had a big one, Jamie uh, managed to not be able to pretty much ride a bike the next day. So he did, you know, as bad as you <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if he's ridden since. His whole side was so bruised up. And I, I actually just missed it on my GoPro because he was ahead of me. And I just missed it. But as I went by, I had my GoPro on and I see his bike. I look back and I was actually going to stop. And then I seen him kind of get up and I said, okay, he's, he's going to be all right. But at first, when I first passed him, he was just laid out on the ground. It's going to give me an excuse to stop and not keep getting roosted, actually. But, yeah. Yeah. I think he rode the Majora Legends thing on the weekend in the round, the MXGP round there. So, oh, okay. So, you hopefully, escape those hills uh, unscathed, mate, because they're pretty brutal. And I was actually watching the Motocross the Nations from back when you did it, you know, was it 2016 now? And that was an incredible race. Obviously, you and Paul on the comms. I guess, have you got any really cool memories from Majora in that particular race? Because that was a crazy one, that finale, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Motocross the Nations at um, at Majora. I mean, I, I've i been to a lot of fantastic motorsports events, uh, more specifically motocross and supercross. Um, that was that was the greatest of them all. It, it, it was just the energy that day. The racing was fantastic. The drama was unbelievable. Um, I had been there about a month before that 
with uh, with um, uh, Stefano and Paolo, uh, who 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 were the promoters of the event and all that sort of stuff. Spent a lot of time with those guys and um, really understood what a passion project that was. I mean, you know, uh, Stefano still is the point guy that 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 handles that race and everything. And he is just as committed and passionate as it comes when it comes to motocross. And one of the coolest things I've ever done in my life was um, they had a legends parade lap uh, before the first motos on Sunday of the motocross nation. Um, they had a, 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 a Johnny O'Mara, Rick Johnson, David Bailey there paraded them around. Um, some of the guys had their old championship bikes with old gear well, I had to do the broadcast, and so I I wasn't gonna get to to do the the sort of lap of honor, and then at the last minute, uh, somebody comes through with Thomas Covington's, you know, two fifty Husky, and got the got the go ahead from the head of television. Okay, go do the lap, and then get back in the broadcast booth, type of thing, and I was the last person to go out, and. So I didn't have a helmet on with just sunglasses and a jacket and jeans. And it was crazy how the energy was riding around and the, how the fans acknowledged me and, and us, I should say, would be the better way to put it. That feeling from that exchange of energy and love almost from, from the fans there and riding around that, the doing that lap was absolutely incredible. And then I stopped on the finish line jump and Paulo and, um, you know, and a Stefano were right there and we like hugged it out. Like, Holy shit. We're here now. The event is happening. And it was like tearing up. We were like broing out and all right, guys, like that was amazing. Thank you for, having me be a part of this. I'm going to go do the work now in the broadcast booth, but the acknowledgement from the fans to the legends riders there were just, it was off the charts. And then of course the racing later on that day was like as good as it gets. It just was, it was just mental. Yeah. How was the shock I when see. the Anderson incident happened, mate? Cause commentating on live TV when something like that happened, <laughs> it's just like, what do you do? Yeah, Paul Malin and I are in the TV booth and literally our jaws are on the floor like, like, wait, what just happened? Like, I, we had like 10 or 15 seconds where I didn't even think we said anything. Mm. And, and like, when? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was wild. And then the third moto being as competitive as it was between France, I think Italy was in it. Um, USA was still in it. Netherlands uh, yeah, and then Webb has it. Yeah. Netherlands was in it. It was, it was crazy. It was, and it was great. It was everything that you want an event like that to be. Um, it just, yeah, it was, it was, it was great. It was great. And it's, that's as a broadcaster, you just feel so fortunate to be the person sitting in the seat that your thoughts and your emotions are coming across to the world on it. That's, I mean, that's where, that's where you want to be. So looking back, because obviously yourself, um, we talk about, you know, Dobby, we, you know, you talk about Rick Johnson, you know, pretty much all these riders from MXGP in, in the US are, are 
there's like kids now which are like 15 16 which you know th- those guys weren't born when you guys were you're in your prime sorry to you know not to make you feel well jeff but this is just how it just trying to get across what how people are appreciated now riders are appreciated because there's 16 year old riders who are going up to ryan Filippo at fox hills in in and getting his autograph when they weren't even around when you know he was kind of like uh just starting out in his pro career so it's it's crazy how this generation appreciates um past riders as much as like you know people my age and and, and below do you know you, you guys are even more famous in 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 theory than when you were when you're actually riding well and you can i mean that's part of the information age is that those like those um God, how would you put it you know those lessons you know you know um you know um um like history lessons are there and available now and with certain podcasts and shows and stuff taking a look back in 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 my generation unless you could find an old magazine that dad had you wouldn't have seen brock lever or Jimmy no. Weinert, or, you know, all of these. I mean, I remember, well, I don't remember, but I was at a Trans AMA race in like 77, 76, something like that. And I I was a little, I would have been like five. And I remember my dad and his buddies talking about Roger DeCoster being there. And Bob Hanna was there. He was like a young kid and things like that. But that's like kind of like hearsay. Well, nowadays, if there's footage of it, you can go back and watch any of Ryan Villapoto's race. You can probably pull any of them up online now if you want. And so, thankfully, our sport is now has enough history for it to really matter. And with the information age and all the uh, the you know World Wide Web and entities that are showing these things in history it now makes it makes a difference. You can, you can see that, you know, but even my generation, like, like our races used to be on, on like two o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday. I mean, you know, <laughs> nowadays you can go on, you know, if you, if you can stream it, you can just go watch it or watch it on, you know, YouTube or rumble or, or something like that now where that yeah, just didn't exist. And so hopefully, because that's where, Okay, so here's 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 why I would say that it's so important for the broadcast to celebrate the past because uh, if it was an event that had never happened, okay, first year, let's take Super Motocross here in America. Nobody's this is this whole playoff thing that they're doing is brand new, so uh, that's the first one ever. But if that if this was the 80th year of that all of those championship battles and all those memories and all those things get stacked up into, because if this is the only SMX championship and Roxon wins it, okay, Grady wins it. And then they don't do it next year. But if there's 80 years of history in that, that builds up to that's why this is important because remember what happened in the drama and the this and the that that happened throughout the decade. Well, th- then it gives it, some validity, right? It, it makes it, 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 it makes it important. Here's why it's important. 
And so you're building on every one of those years. And so with our sport, I mean, um, Supercross as a sport, the first one was in 1972. Um, motocross, really, you're kind of going back to scrambles and motocross, 1947-ish, something like that. Um, but now it's starting to have a rich history, uh, and then it makes a difference. And if the kids can be taught that early on, then it's like, oh, this is why this is important. So the, obviously you understand the the importance of the motocross nations, especially from from a U.S. perspective, you know, winning this country in 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 history and um you know every legend that's taken part Wait, what, was, it, what was that you said with uh obviously the usa most winning this um country in motocross nation's history and um, it sounded like you said usa is the winningest country in the history of okay uh, i yeah, wanted for, to listeners my, to be clear my comments yeah so <laughs> <laughs> um See, that's so, the twenty-five-year-old in me being an asshole. I didn't even uh, no. know that. Bring it on. You I know, love you it. know. I love you, do I? I wonder if our listeners know who has the second most wins. Uh, I think it must be Great Britain. Great Britain, I, I believe it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we had we had a, a great time in the fifties. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's when the, the history of the motocross nations is really really interesting. If you if you research it, it's a pretty cool event like that concept of it yeah well my question you know and it is a little bit political so i i I appreciate if you have to tread lightly but when like every year you kind of hear a a bit of politics within the american industry about who to select in because it's always you know for me is you know and this is just me being black and white is that really it's the three best riders the, the three best performing riders that you can send from your country um, to represent your country. And I think, you know, for, maybe for a couple of years, I think uh, the nation's kind of lost that, but it's definitely back with like, you know, France bringing it and, and the Netherlands bringing it. Everybody wants to pat their best best team. So as an American, does it frustrate you when you guys aren't sending your best team? Um, a little bit. I mean, it's just my, I, I, I always wanted to go. I always was very driven. Um, and excited to be named on the team and and literally put my heart and soul into it. And we would make 300 bucks or 600 bucks each to win it. Nowadays where the money for the riders is, is, you know, like they can stay here and top guys will make more than $5 million a year. So what, like, why are they so that the economics of it start to play a factor in the decision and now, it, it, you know, even this year in America, there's there's a few extra races that are trickling into September here. Um, World Supercross is on the table. And so there are other races that are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars as a rider to go to. And so why am I going to go to this? Because, you, you know, the, the promoting group of the Motocross of Nations benefited for decades off of a guy like me having a desire to go race this and I, like I'd go do it for free. I want to be on the team and I want to go race these guys from around the world. That landscape has changed. And mm-hmm. so the economics of it and, and riders, you know, having full schedules now where they're racing 30 times a year and, and 
it's not easy on you and the dedication it takes. And at a certain time, you got to take a break. September is typically in America. That's when you want to take a break. But, you know, I got to keep training all month long to do, to do this event. And I'm now making the transition from riding motocross in the summer to now getting back into supercross and, and that whole thing. So it's a difficult um it's a difficult sort of time period and uh, decision to make. And like, I, I don't like, they're talking about this year team being sort of a quote, a B team. I'll take the B team or the C team that wants to be there over the A team that is trying to fulfill some sponsorship obligations because their race is gnarly and you have to dig deep and you have to, you, you have to ride with a passion and a spirit that, that really becomes like unmatched. Like you find a different level there and it's like that pride of your country and, and of, of yourself against the other racers and, and these things, it's, it's a much different. The mentality of that race is so much different uh, than anything else that you'll do throughout the year. That's really what makes it special. I was quickly going to say, James, before you finish up, and I guess it epitomizes that in 92 in Manjimup, you raced that with a broken thumb, didn't you, mate? And there's that really cool photo, obviously, in Australia. That's a long trip. It's not just to Australia. It's Western Australia, so it's so far for you. Yeah. Massive trip. And there's that awesome photo with the bars almost on the ground. I remember you and Jace on the Gypsy Tales pod, you guys did having a chat about it. But just talk about that yeah. experience. And I guess you sort of embodied it, didn't you, really, what it's all about to be at the Nations and put yourself, you know, for your country, put them out there and fight through the pain and do what you got to do, isn't it? Yeah. And that year really the a team would have been uh bradshaw stanton kadrowski something like that they didn't want to go billy lyles was in contention for the 500 world title Larocco and i were were uh battling in america for the 125 title people don't remember but we still had two races to go in america after the nation but we had to become teammates for that event mike rode 250 i rode the 125 and we put our heart and soul into it. Every one, every one of our motos for all three of us was ride from the back. Like it wasn't like somebody got a whole shot and cruised around out front. It was like need second for the win, you know, and you fall down and now you're in fifth and time's running out. And, and it was just an epic battle. I mean, yeah, I fell in the last practice and I was just telling the story the other day. Um, and I, and I, and I sprained my thumb, probably fractured it. And it was crazy because my mechanic, Steve Butler, was Australian, but he, he, his immigration status wasn't where it needed to be. So he didn't do the trip with me. So Brian Lunas, who is a legendary mechanic for Bob Hanna and Rick Johnson, Bradshaw, blah, blah, blah. Um, he was working on my bikes that weekend. And I came in and I get inside this box truck that we have that we're pitting out of. And I'm like taking off my helmet and my goggles and I'm like grabbing my hand like Brian, man, I man, when I fell down, I did something to my thumb, like my thumb ain't right. And he slaps me in the face and he says, Shut the F up about this. Don't tell anybody about this. Get on that bike and you gotta ride. So I don't care what your thumb is, don't say a word to nobody. And I'm, you know, twenty years old and I'm just like, uh he just slapped me. Like, uh Okay, and of course it's Lunas, right? Like, you're gonna listen to the guy. So take some painkillers, whatever I did, and and I remember they were parading us around in opening ceremonies in these little Utes, and there was like a little roll roll bar on the back of the Ute, 
and I'm trying to hang on to it as they're driving us around the track, right? So I don't fall out. And I I couldn't hang on to it. I go to the line, the first moto, I'm like, I don't, I don't, I can't grip the throttle. Like I can't hold on to the handlebars. Gate drop, Everts and I had this epic battle. We both crashed together, like get back up. Two fastest 125 riders in the world going after it. Second moto was much of the same. Had to ride from way back, just battling past, you know, 500s and 250s in the different classes. And then at the end of the day, we won the race. And I'm like, you know, I found a way to hold that champagne after the race. So also, it was a lot better, the cold champagne on that bruised thumb. So How was the team dynamic for that race? Yeah. And I'm telling you, it's a different, it's a different feeling because you're doing it as a team. Michael Rocco and I were bitter rivals. We were in the middle of a, a heated championship battle in America, but Mike and Billy Lyles and then Roy Jansen, our team manager, we all hoisted the Chamberlain trophy. And it's crazy. I think back, I, like if I just close my eyes, I can put myself on that, in that building that overlooked the track. And when we pulled the trophy up and they played your national anthem, uh, it's just a feeling you you feel like you you put that effort out for other people, and I think that that's the difference. Is it's a very selfless race, and I always it, it it always made a difference because every motocross nation there would be servicemen and women from around the world. I'm stationed here. I'm stationed there. I'm a big motocross fan. I got leave for this weekend, and you're kind of like, you know, none of us are going to fight in Iraq. I mean, no. you know, that, that type of thing. And that it's like when these service men and women are there, it's almost like you're by winning and by putting out that effort and the entertainment and this pride in your country and your flag and, and all these sort of things, it's like a, a massive high five and thank you to them that provide us the freedoms that come with this right that we life's pretty easy you know bad day at the dirt bike track is still better than a good day in iraq you know what i mean so, <laughs> yeah getting shot <laughs> yeah um, yeah i've i've always you know as the three of us are we're, we're very very much and i'm going to call it football even though you guys call it soccer so um football. all three of us football to me. Are, are football fans um and and i i basically in my mind, Motocross Nations is the World Cup. The, 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 the you know, it, players are in tears when they don't get selected for their country. Like playing in the World Cup is, is the, you know, the bucket list of every professional player's dreams. And only 11 or 22 squad members get selected from their country. And you think about the, the millions of footballers and, we we talked about it a while ago, Ed, with how many just how many teams are in the uh, the Premiership in in the UK and in, in Championship and right way down to non league and most of those guys are plumbers and gone as well else, but you know all with the same goal is that one day the, the most ultimate thing is to, to to play for your country and when you play for your country in the UK you get a thousand pounds for playing, so they're not doing it for the money as well. Yes, there is yeah. uh, considerable commercial activities by being selected. Or um, uh, for your country, and I, and I guess one thing which I think some of the uh, the American athletes might not think of is 
when they are riding for their country, they're not only riding for their country, but actually their commercial um, uh, viability escalates around the world. So like when you used to come over as Europeans or the rest of the world, we didn't get to see you guys. Like it's very hard for Europeans to come yeah. over. Well, you used to, to come over to America to watch these riders, you know, ask most people, they don't go to a national event. So when, when you yeah. guys come over, your, your, uh, literally fan base must triple. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's where you've become a, a legend status because of what you've done and what yeah. you've put in previously. And, and I guess it's hindsight, isn't it? When those riders have missed out on that opportunity of representing their country, I wonder if they're going to regret that opportunity in the future. Yeah, I mean, Stanton has said that he, I mean, he's like, yeah, I, I should have went. But but think about this. If if 2023 was the first year that they decided to organize some football games between different countries, you're like, oh, they're going to do this new thing. Like, there's going to be a team from each country, and they're going to do this, like, you know, bracket system and see which country is the best. You're like, oh, that's kind of a cool idea. But instead – we have Wembley 1966. Elizabeth II is in attendance. Like England beats Germany, right? Like yeah. that, I mean, I get goosebumps right now. I've like legit goosebumps, not even my country, but yeah. those moments. And that's what's so crazy about sport is like, I wasn't even alive, but I can understand the significance of an event like that and then when understanding uh you know like it's so much more than just a game and what it does for the morale of the country and the pride in your country and all these sort of things uh it when as the athlete you're a way of testing yourself and pushing yourself mentally physically emotionally it's like the it's man it's hard to put into words it's where you find out it's where you find out who you're actually like like what you're made of and it'd be equivalent of going through like the navy seal program (laughs) yeah finding finding at what point are you going to break and then yeah surviving at the end of it and completing it and the, the feeling of of winning yeah some of those documentaries on that on specifically on that world cup or just so like the fact that they have the footage and that uh, some of these guys obviously getting pretty old, but they were able to have commentary and, you know, interviews with them and then talking about and explaining what was happening through that. That's the stuff that then if you're, if you're a modern day player, you, you go, I want that. Right. Yeah. Like, and that's, and so that's why telling like that's why history is so important to the present and then how it affects the future that that way it's it's it, i was literally we were literally watching something this morning my son and i and i go can you believe that england hasn't won the world cup since 66 yeah i said think about like like that baffles me more than you. I mean, as America, we're still pretty young in the scope of things, but it's yeah. like, how can England have not won the world cup? Oh, we were watching, my girlfriend was showing me the new uh, Beckham uh, documentary and um, 
we were I'm like, wait, that famous red card that he got, was that in the World Cup or not? We were so we were kind of World Cup. All, but yeah. Was yeah so it was World Cup, yeah. Was that the like him the, and Zidane of all people, the two red cards that just will live in infamy. But it was incredible how the country completely turned against him, you know, just from from that one rash moment. But the way that Beckham sort of rebuilt himself and came back and, and spurred the team on to to win against, I think it was Greece when we were down or something like that. I can't real call it. it was a while that ago. That was a World Cup qualifier, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, great just... yeah. Well, that's what's going to be great about that about that documentary. Uh, I, I I can't wait to watch it. I think it might be on Netflix or whatever. But you know, those those when you hear when you see these sporting documentaries and it's so much, it's so not just superficial. Like this this shit means everything to these people. And we're really lucky that what we're doing is sport and 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 there's a lot of celebrity that comes along with it for guys like that. That you know, the monetary side is incredible. And, yeah. you, you know, as opposed to like we talked about soldiers fighting in Afghanistan or something or like, yeah. And that's something that's not lost on me either with um, when when athletes get really arrogant and really selfish about certain things. You know, why why have I got to li- li- live a life in motorcycle racing and another guy didn't. He's pouring concrete or, you know, is a soldier or whatever. Something less glamorous. Yeah. It can be just as fulfilling, but less glamorous. And like we're all really lucky that life this this is my life. It wasn't like, you know, I did something special that put me in this position. The opportunities came and so I went with it. You know? Um yeah. and we're so fortunate. And it, it, here, here's another thing that I, really resonates with me lately um, is, and is um, you know, there are a lot of racers that come and go, a lot of really good riders. And the fact that I had this incredible sort of, you know, adversary in this, this, this um, battle with Jeremy McGrath. He, he raced a lot of other people besides me. I raced a lot of other people besides him. But we had this rivalry that has seemed to resonate and has lived on through the last few decades. Okay. And, you know, honestly, in Supercross, he kicked my ass all but seven times. Well, six, because he wasn't in one of them you know, premier class supercross. Um, so I got like six compared to his 72, you know, but the, but the championship battle and what our rivalry meant and where I can't speak for him, but the level that it drove me to the, how I tested myself and how I pushed myself and to be able to live that, that, have that journey and to have those memories and to live that and to be tested that way. I didn't appreciate it like I do now, but I've, I've said this before, but I watched this, these two separate documentaries. One was on Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, you know, uh, National Basketball Association, NBA players in America who were rivals from college and they took it to the court as professionals. Keep in mind, there's a team 
but the battle was between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. There are eight other players on the team, plus a coach and other players on the bench. It was those guys. The rest of the players were like pawns in their game. Yeah. And then I watched this documentary on Bjorn Borg and John McEnroe. And these guys were just, it was just incredible. The dedication, how, yeah, you got to play a tournament. You got to play other, other guys to get to the final, but we know we're just getting to the final and then it's you and I and how they pushed each other to the limit, knowing that their adversary was going here. And, and so I appreciate that I had that opportunity that I was even in that position because there are hundreds of motorcycle racers that never get that opportunity to test yourself to the highest level to see just what you're made of. How, how hard can you try? How deep can you dig? What will you risk to get the victory? to to earn that championship and that number one plate to be the standing on the top step of the podium. Like what will, how far can you push yourself? What are you made of? And I was able to live that. And that's, um, there's nothing else in life that has presented itself in life that is anywhere near as fulfilling as what that is. It, you know, raising a family and kids and all this, a totally different thing. We're talking about yeah. a totally different thing. This is testing yourself to the ultimate limit and what can you, how hard can you focus, how much physical abuse and everything can you put yourself through to, to, for, for the victory. And for that, I'm really, I'm really thankful that I have had an adversary that was the quality of Jeremy McGrath on the other side that I gave to myself again. Is Interesting, Jeff, because before we uh, we press the record button, we were talking about you know how dangerous motocross is and in, in what everybody puts on the line. And you hit it hit the nail on the head when you basically said, and I think this will resonate with so many people listening to this podcast, is that motocross makes you feel like you're really living, like nothing comes as close to what motocross is able to give. And um, oh, you're alive. Oh yeah. That's you throw a leg over a motorcycle. It is like nothing else. My, my girlfriend, my partner, Jessica had ridden a motorcycle when she was little. We just did a learn to ride thing out at Moto Ventures here in Southern California about a month ago. She loves it. And it's like, she gets it. What riding a dirt bike, even separate from a street bike, you got a lot of rules, a dirt bike. It goes anywhere you want. You shut out everything else. It's you and the engine and the feeling that the, that riding and the feedback from the motorcycle through the handlebars and the foot pegs and the feet and whatever is giving you and where your eyes are going, you're, you're the only one that is responsible for guiding that motorcycle and the vibration and the feeling of, of, of what of the texture and the terrain gives you in return and the, you know, the, the wind's not rushing through your hair, but the wind rushing through your helmet and through your goggles and yeah, yeah, you don't feel that at all. <laughs> but there's, um, 
Kyle Cowling did this really cool documentary with um, Tom, uh, um, uh, what's his name from Blink-182? I remember his last name. The lead singer of Blink-182, guitarist. And it, it was Tom, great. because DeLong, is it DeLong or DeLong? Yeah, DeLong, yeah, 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 yeah. So, and Kyle is an incredible filmmaker. And he, Tom built this street bike motorcycle and how he was able to put into words the, what motorcycling meant to him. And he was talking about how when he was younger and he skateboarded and he could feel the vibration of the skateboard. And then once the music thing started, the energy and the vibration from the music was this, this energy transfer. And now that he's older, gets on the motorcycle, the vibration from the motorcycle, riding down the road, being able to do all this. It's a pretty interesting concept. He's a deep, deep dude. Like, you know, he's got some deep thoughts. And, and I feel the same way with that, like riding a motorcycle and riding a dirt bike and then racing. Like, why am I racing motocross at age 52, you know? But there's just nothing else like it in the world for me. There's, I mean, you know, you're out there at Farley just getting your ass roosted and you, you keep going around. You didn't pull off. You're going until the checkered flag. And there's something to be said for that, you know, that that makes you feel alive. And, you know, like I said, it puts living in your life. One of the things what made me laugh at Farley um, being with you guys that weekend was uh, Chad kind of took it really easy on a Saturday. Then after uh, after a Saturday in um, uh, basically uh, struggling a little bit with a couple of locals um, around the track, he was like, fuck this, I'm racing tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. So that, and that, that, racers, that racers mentality as well, it never ends. Yeah, yeah. And you're out there and it's like, you know, you're just letting it hang out as hard as you ever have for what again? I mean, you can justify it if you're going for a professional racing title, but you're out there just, and that's that, uh, that's the unexplainable part um, that we're just, and we are certainly wired differently than most people, especially when you talk about injury, you know, yeah. I mean, I've been at a table um, with, an ex-girlfriend and her parents and and I had just broken all the bones in my hand and none of the three of them had ever broken a bone ever. And they're like, like, why are you out of the house? Like you've got a broken hand. It's like, Oh, it's a few, you know, a few broken bones here. No big deal. It'd be all right. You know, it's not like, not like my back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, back, my leg, my toe, my ankle, my this, my that, my, you know, and I mean, that's, we are just the average person just looks at what we do and you're like, this is incredible. I would have been on disability for 10 years, but for us, we're like, oh, yeah, it'd be all right. Give it eight weeks, yeah. 10 weeks, I'm riding again. Wait, you can ride again? Well, yeah, that's what I do. And so it's, we are definitely not normal. Going back to the start of our conversation when we were talking about business, obviously it riding and and working with uh, the companies and the brands you do, obviously it goes hand in hand, but it still, I, I guess it doesn't matter to a, a certain aspect whether you ride or not. I mean, being involved in the brands, 
and giving them uh, the knowledge experience that you've got um, is obviously a huge plus for these brands, Jeff. Um, for instance, uh, like with, uh, you were talking to me about um, viral goggles and about you know, how you've kind of sort of got the goggles, noticed some changes that you want to be made. And then obviously they're off now making a better goggle. Yeah. I mean, that's all part of it as it, I mean, I certainly have a lot of experience being 52 um, Scott Steffi is the founder of viral brand goggles. We, we actually raced together. We're pretty similar in age. Um, so it, it's not like he doesn't have great experience and it's just, you know, two, two, two heads are better than one. Um, we all live different experiences and it's like new ideas and that's, having a company that makes uh, performance products, that's your, it's an endless um, search for making the product better. And if you could change this or that, how are we going to do it better? Okay. And next, next round of production or a redesign uh, being able to bring all of that life experience in, into the product. So then um, the consumer ends up with the best product that they can. So, and, and I mean, with a company like viral, I'm just getting started with them. Um, you know, I have experience from from being an athlete to being, a, you know, a sales rep at, at a dealership or the manufacturing side, like just my years with Fox and Shift and, and the different brands I was with. I've been, I mean, you know, Greg Arnett and I single-handedly, uh, you know, worked together to develop the very first Arnett goggle. And so just a lot of experience that way. And, and that's, you get to be my age and for all the younger listeners and Ed, um, you know, you, you, you really, um, um, value being able to, to take your life experiences and, and, and all that and, and put it into something moving forward. Right. It's like a, like an old man that's, that's, you know, having a talk with a young person and, trying to teach them lessons that way. You know, there's some value. It's probably something very instinctual to being a human being. Yeah, mate, even just on this podcast, we definitely value your knowledge and expertise in so many topics because it's not something you can just gain overnight. You know, it takes years like what you've done and you know all the fine margins you need to succeed in a sport and in business and in life because you've lived it. So it's unique and it's experience that only you have. And I also wanted to ask you a little bit off the track, but, you know, the training you used to do, you used to love the extreme heat, didn't you? And obviously those jerseys were, you know, probably pretty savage. They're not really uh, breathable like they are. But just that mental side, did that give you, feel like it gave you like a mental edge on your competitors, I guess, training in those conditions. So when you faced them on a race day, you were like, yeah, this is me. This is what I'm all about. I'm ready for this. Whereas the other guys are like dying. You're just like, yeah, I'm primed for battle kind of thing. And there was that particular day at Kenworthy's, wasn't there, mate, which sort of, really set you apart and all that training paid off emphatically that day didn't it yeah it was hot dude it was so <laughs> hot and there was just no air moving there was no breeze it's trapped in these trees um fairly slow speed essentially but it was it's all it's all in the mentality of um is in those days in the kawasaki days that would have been 97 i used to leave the kawasaki truck i'd have everything on except my goggles and I always wanted to walk to the starting line no matter how far it was and the purpose of that is that I've got my helmet on like I'm ready to go to battle I'm in the mindset the funnel is now down to here I've I've 
I've funneled everything else out, everyone else out. And as you walk to the starting line, you're like high-fiving fans, uh, your friends and stuff that are in the pit area, you know, wishing you good luck, all this, all this positive reinforcement that you get even more so because you're on foot than being on the bike, but I would just be in that zone and I'm ready, I'm ready to go to battle. You know, I mean, imagine if, you know, your entire day working up until we started this podcast, you know, I don't know if you're married at or whatever. It's like, wake up this morning and the wife's like, man, fucking hey Ed, good luck with this podcast today. You're going to crush it. And you go to the, go to the, get some coffee this morning and like, Hey, kick ass on that podcast. You're the best. You know, it's like, imagine working, imagine if you had that in your, in your regular yeah. day, like I need that. how much more, how much more positive reinforcement that would be. Right. Yep. You walk into the office and everybody's like, you know, you're the best dude, James, you got this. You you're the best podcaster on the earth, dude. You're going to nail it today. Like positive reinforcement is really important. So like we've got a new dog and it's like you're sometimes you want to kick his ass, but it's like <laughs> that positive reinforcement is so valuable. And that's all that that is. And that's why I was always wondered why certain guys, like when I was younger and I was the young guy on the team, we'd go to autograph sessions. They want to get there 15 minutes late, leave 15 minutes early. And it's like a pain in the ass to go to a dealer signing. You're like, why are we leaving early? These people are super nice to us, <laughs> right? All they have is something good to say. Like that, I I can't recall one time where I was at an autograph session where somebody come up to you know what, Emma, you suck. I'm sure they're there. They didn't say it, but like it's not like nah, I don't want your autograph. I'm getting Damon Bradshaw's. Not interested. You know, they're kind of like even if they don't know who you are, they'll take it. And like, oh, okay, good luck, whatever your name is. But they didn't say anything mean to you. They said a bunch of nice, positive stuff, like encouraging. Yeah. So I want to go do that every Friday before the race. You know, <laughs> and, and and some riders look at that as like a pain in the ass. Yeah, it's a good point you make there. You think back to I don't know if you remember Gianluca Vialli, the really great Italian soccer player that has since passed. But you know, he used to say. After he finished his career, he used to do a lot of charity work. And he said, my attitude is be selfish, get into charity because it makes you feel good doing things for people to help them. You know, that's as humans, that's what really made him feel good. You can definitely resonate with that, mate. And I obviously got up at 3.30 a.m. in Australia here, mate. So I'll have to tell my wife to, you know, get up at three with me and, you know, prepare the pep talk, mate. Just massaging the shoulders, seeing the water bottle, get some coffee going. Coffee on, a good yeah. slap on the ass. Get on in there and start it. <laughs> yeah. oh. oh man, but no, it's a cool insight. Hey, yeah. Ed, this could be another um, this could be another business for Jeff, like positive reinforcement, like a mixtape, life coaching. Um, like, yeah, so like you know, like yeah. podcasts, and stuff, but we just have like Jeff telling you how great you are on the way to work, and you sort of just get in your yeah. fist pump, and you're high fiving yeah. everybody. Your boss is like, "What the fuck is going on here?" <laughs> Yeah, well, what we're going to do it is as a coaching program, we'll sell it on Instagram and Facebook, right? So we just got to put it together. Yeah, I'm So I I just thought about this about a month ago, and it's interesting you said that. When I was younger, my dad got me this set of cassette tapes that were total, like, you know, um, motivational speaking. 
And I remember them telling stories about sports teams and just all this different stuff. And I hadn't thought about this in 30 years. And just like a month ago, I said, Dad, do you remember those tapes that you got? I go, what? what? He goes, oh, yeah, the guy was out of Dallas. And I'm like, you remember? I said, do you remember what they were? Like, I would love to hear those again. And he's like, uh, let me think about it. He goes, I, I, he goes, obviously don't have the tapes anymore. I mean, we're talking, I was listening to them when I was 10 or 12 years old. And, and I'm like, I need this set of tapes to give to my son. Probably not going to listen to him, but I was forced to listen to him in the box van and the motorhome as we were driving around the country. But I probably didn't make much of it then, but subliminally, like, I, I bet that those things made a big difference somewhere along oh, the line. hundred percent, hundred percent. I'm a big believer in, um, you know, like every challenge that you, you, you handle in life, if you handle it in a negative way, it's going to end up one way. If you handle it in a positive way and you keep pushing forward and you just keep seeing the best of, you know, best of it in, in making the best of it, then there is going to be a, a way more positive outcome than thinking negatively. So, um, oh, yeah, yeah. I, visualization and all that is crazy like your mind is like when when it was championship time the mental side of getting it done is so heavy and it's so intense and visualizing yourself succeeding and even uh like talking yourself through the actual race and just positive thoughts and not letting the gremlins get in there oh yeah it's a whole whole nother level but that's that's what i was going to say getting back to the heat is my son doesn't like he didn't like the heat and i'm like dude you play soccer football in southern california all throughout the summer and a lot of his games now that he's getting older are on the artificial turf that shit gets hot yeah dude it's hot and he's like in his new team they have a black jersey and i'm like come on you're an emic here like yeah. Let's do this. And I so this year was really where I'm like, you, it's all in your head. You've got to get past it. What do you think the other kids, the other young men, the other young men aren't hot also? Everyone's hot. You've got yeah. to work through that. So you had the black gear too. I remember back in the day you were saying about some of those races too. And I guess with the positive reinforcement stuff, I remember you telling a story about when you split with Kawasaki in 99, wasn't it? You were like, oh, crap, well, this is like, what am I going to do with my life? And I think your dad was the one that was like, hey, son, it's all right. We can move forward. Yeah. Let's get at it again. Was that definitely plays on your mind as well and definitely taught you some Well, things? first off, that was a very nice way to put that when <laughs> Kawasaki and I split. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> I didn't want to use fired or something like kind. that. But... Yeah. That was an yeah. you, Ed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, when Kawasaki released me from my contract, um, yeah, that it, it was it was a real low point in my life, not just my career, and so embarrassing, and so I was so ashamed to call my dad, and uh, my buddy Tony Strangio and I were driving down the Lake Havasu where the incident happened. It was a Thursday after the incident got in touch with the district attorney down there, told her we need to, can we just get this thing handled? Like, I don't need a court date three months from now. Like we need to get this handled. She's like, well, what's the rest? I'm like, look, anything you're going to do to me, penalties for my illegal behavior is nothing compared to what's happening in my professional career. 
if I can get some finality sooner than later, let's do it. So like, down there by Friday morning, let's get it taken care of. Thursday, I'm driving down to Havasu, Tony and I, and I got to call my dad. And it was like, I was so ashamed that I let him down and that, you know, especially for something like that, it's like just so unfocused, not doing the right things. Like, come on, you're being a knucklehead. You're a, a multi-time champion. You're almost 30 years old. This is, this is dumb. This is stupid behavior. And I'm on the phone and like told my dad what happened. And he's like, okay, huh? he says, all right, well, let's get you on a different bike because you weren't happy riding in Kawasaki this year. Anyway, let's get you on a different bike and get you going in the right direction. And I'm literally like, no, excuse me. I'm, I need to talk to Gary Emig. Is Gary Emig available? Cause the Gary Emig I know literally was going to put his foot up my ass through the phone. Yeah. And he was so, he was so understanding and so supportive. I think he, I mean, he knew that I, I knew like, I knew that I had messed up. Like I knew that this was not good. And his parenting at the time, I think couldn't have been any better. And I'm really thankful that, that he handled it the way that he did, because it, it certainly um, brought us closer um, and, and was, um, it got me, thinking in the right, in the right direction too, you know? And then he's kind of like, well, what, what, what's this behavior about? Why, why, why is this happening? Like you need to do something different there. And so I did. No, that's a really cool story. Um, It is amazing, isn't it? It's like, and I expect what, how your dad was with you now, it, it's kind of set a precedent for how you are with your children because there are going to be those days. I've got a 26, a 23 and an 11 year old girls. So, um, you know, I have to keep her, uh, what would you say? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, as a dad, there's going to be days when, you know, just going to be things that you don't want to know or don't want to hear, but you kind of, you have to be supportive and you have to be there for them. Luckily, so far, so good. But yeah, children, uh, children are a blessing, but also, um, uh, uh, in it, yeah so like well, you, you just worry about them so much because we've all done stupid things you've seen stupid things happen you've seen really horrific bad things happen and you know that it can happen and when you're like my daughter's 19 she's on the music scene and she's an actress and all this sort of entertainment stuff and it's like she's 19 going on 29 and you just worry that that she's going to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and and something traumatic is going to happen. You know, the hard lessons are okay, but you know, there, there are a lot of things out there that you worry about. And, and you just, as a child, you just, you don't, you don't know. Uh, as a child, you don't understand the dangers as a parent. You're constantly thinking. You understand about too much of it. Right. Yep. Yep. And but mom is a cool. uh, mom's a bit of a helicopter parent. So I, I try to be uh, a little more understanding. Uh, and I'm saying that in a bad way. She has a tremendous amount of care, and 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 worry and all that. And she plays the mothering role, and that's not my role. My role is to be the father. Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, it you you always feel like you're failing. You know, I think a lot of the times you you're 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 just like, oh, my parent did it so much better. But then, hopefully, we get 20 years down the line, um, 
and there'll be the moment where your daughter will be like, dad, you were so good to me. And I remember this or that. And thank you so much. And so you just, you, you know, you do the best you can. And that, it seems like you, know, you can read all these books in the world, but it's really just, you know, you got to read the room and you got to have that certain feel and, and, and trying to understand the difference between right and wrong. And hopefully you can raise your kids to be adults and then they do it again. That kind of um, life lesson that you went through, Jeff, at that particular time, and um, what obviously it was really important that your dad supported you at that point. You wouldn't expect in that, and in, in he kind of surprised you with his kind of um, with his mindset. With uh, riders, riders of today, like looking back at some of the things what you've you've learned for your career, what would be the the best single piece of advice you would give to um, to some of those riders which are sweating it out a little bit at a moment, haven't got a ride for next year. Um, you know, what would your advice be to those guys now in, in Supercross and Motocross who haven't got a ride for next year? How do they remain positive? Well, I think it's an interesting time period now because what what I really learned throughout my career is that, you know, the, like the, 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 sort of tug of war between talent and hard work. And I feel like I was probably uh, a athlete that kind of was tugged between the two and, and, you know, had the talent, didn't always want to do the hard work, but at times I did, but at times I didn't. And now I believe, I honestly feel that the real talent, the super talent is the ability to do the hard work because there have been plenty of, of talented riders that have come through and not lived up to their expectations because um, they didn't want to do the hard work because they were so talented. They didn't have to. And it sets this sort of tone, like especially when you're in the 125, you know, 85, 125, 250 class. But then you get up into the professional ranks where you're riding the premier class. And these are grown men that have mortgages and families and they're doing the work. And most of the time, the hard work beats the talent at that level. The younger levels, your talent, it's just all about the talent. So really in the end, the real talent becomes the ability to do the hard work and to dedicate yourself and sacrifice. I do without, like I'm not trying to discredit any any of the current, current writers uh, right now, because I, I do think that there's, a tremendous amount of hard work is going on, you know, deep into the field. And so then talent starts to play a role also. Um, and specifically, like you, you mentioned a question of a rider that doesn't have, doesn't have a ride, <laughs> stay active, keep training in our sport, give it a couple races, a ride will open up. It happens every year. Such and such doesn't have a ride. I'll give it a little bit. I mean, look what happened to Pro Circuit here in America this year. They, every one of their guys was out. And then the guys yes. that they put in got hurt. And so, unfortunately, that's a, a reality that we have to face in in Supercross and Motocross. Yeah, but that's a brutal sport, isn't it? It can be, yeah. I mean, my old team manager, um, when I was at uh, Kawasaki, Bruce Sternstrom, I mean, we did have meetings and he'd say, look, first thing you have to do is figure out how to ride every race. Second thing is how to win a race. 
third thing has been how to win the championship beyond that. We are paying you and the whole race team is here is to A, do research and development so that Kawasaki develops the best motocross product that they can. And then you're also here, B, is you're here to help us sell that product. So from Kawasaki's perspective, if you're not at the race, you're not helping us sell product. Right. And and then when you look at it from the racing side of things, very rarely will a rider ever win the championship if they haven't ridden every race. There's the rare time that, you know, somebody wins every race and wraps up the title early. But for the most part, you you gotta be there every week. And if you can't be there every week, um, then then winning the championship is, is gonna be a, a real long shot. Yeah, well said, mate. I guess just to before you go in, James, just to expand on that, mate. I've done a lot of podcasts with privateers and a trainer in Australia, Nathan Crawford, who runs a program training, you know, all levels of guys with a lot of professionals too. And he he sort of just, you know, emphasizes the point of commitment and you've got to be responsible and accountable for your actions. Like if you get up early and you press that snooze button, that's on you. You've made that decision. You've obviously didn't want to get out of bed and do whatever you had to do at that point in time. So obviously you'd know, mate, the sacrifice that needs to be made. You need to be all in. And I guess for being prepared to suffer, like you were saying, in those hot days, and it is a selfish sport, and he was saying you're going to let people down in your personal life, but you can't really mix it these days. You've got to be all in to be that pro athlete, and you can't, you know, do your partying and mix it all like maybe you would have done. You know, you had a great time in a lot of those years, and that's cool, but the sport's changed a lot now, hasn't it? And you've seen it and lived through it, and I guess what's your take on it? Does that all sort of ring pretty true? Yeah, and I mean, there's endless stories you know, you read stuff about uh, Kobe Bryant and, you know, athletes like that. You know, somebody, I was just some somebody from the Premier League is, they said, oh, yeah, I'm going to get to training 30 minutes early because I'm going to be the guy. And then they show up and the the guy that's really the guy has already been there for 30 minutes working out or training or whatever, you know, that, I mean, that's, that's a common story. And that all has to do with dedication and like, how bad do you want it? How, what will you sacrifice to, to reach the goal? And that's why goal setting is so important because without a goal, where are you going? You, you, there's no way to judge where you're at. Yeah. It's a good point, mate. It's really interesting. It's like the first in last to leave sort of attitude with a lot of those guys. Cause they're just, yeah, doing everything they can to get better. And I guess we're sort of, done over 90 minutes here mate the time's flown and i just wanted to get your take on a couple of things i guess the current racing the smx what's your thoughts of the format and do you believe the threat of wsx had anything to do with making it so much better you hear people say yes in some camps some in no and i just wanted to get your thoughts on it mate because it's a pretty interesting topic for discussion especially with someone like yourself yeah i mean i think that uh i mean i'm not on the inside the press conference from the smx um, they said that this thing has been in the works for a couple of years. Um, maybe it had been, I, I don't know or not, but certainly um, Adam Bailey and Ryan Sanderson creating Supercross Global and Tony Cochran and those guys um, are uh, uh, in, in a way a, a real threat to, to the business. I look at, at it as, as just expanding on it. Um, I try not to make it personal. Um, but what it's done is it's created a better environment for the racing in America. And they added, what, uh, $5.9 million to the pockets 
of the racers in America. So that's all good. Um, another level of, of championships and competition, and, and that's all good for everyone else. I know that what we're doing with World Supercross is taking um, really a sport that originated in America and trying to take it global. And I think that, uh, you know, rising tide raises all ships type thing effect that eventually we get five or 10 years down the line with world supercross and we have um true global partners and sponsorships and we've got world supercross in 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 places that it's just never been a dirt biking motocross supercross introducing that sport to um other parts of the world will will just make the the sport even bigger because remember Edison Dye started bringing Husqvarna's over in 1966 to Southern California. And he brought over guys like Torsten Hallman to ride these dirt bikes in America. And that, that you know, this was a European sport. America was new. Now look how we talk about it. America alone is 30% of global off-road motorcycle sales and especially in our sport, really have to believe money-wise and all these other things that American Supercross is the pinnacle of the sport in off-road dirt bike racing. You know, I know GP fans probably find, you know, take take offense to that. And I don't want to discredit what happens on the world stage with that. It's a tremendous championship. Um, but in, in my mind, you know, Supercross probably has the biggest viewership and all that here in America. But you know, 50, let's see, 58 years ago, that wasn't the case, right? 56 years ago, it was new here. And so do we get another 15, 20 years down the line with a, a true global world championship? Um, what will it look like? Well, can, can World Supercross be the F1 of dirt bike racing? Can it truly be on par with F1 and MotoGP, I believe that it can. Yeah, I, I I actually agree, Jeff. When you when you start to think of you know MXGP have tapped into markets like Indonesia, in in the fans go crazy about you know why are we going to Indonesia, and then you realize that how many bikes in Asia, how many mopeds are sold, and um, you know, and the reason why those guys are on mopeds is obviously because it's easier, to, you know, cheaper and everything else. But at the same time. Those are the, those those kids in Indonesia. You only have to look at the stats on Facebook and Instagram. They're watching dirt bikes, so there's a massive audience yeah. in, in Indonesia. And, and if you look at pretty much every single person's, you know, who's at the, you know, the top of the sport. If you look at if they looked at their um, uh, demographics, Indonesia is going to be a big player on every single person's audience. Um, and when you start to think that if World Supercross started to go to um, you know, like the, the the Saudi Arabia's, the you know Dubai's, um, Brazil, Brazil, yeah, because we you know MXGP went to Brazil and it was massive there. But like, you know, you've got these countries which are so untapped and are hungry, really, really hungry for. Um, and the other thing to remember is is motocross is still an accessible sport compared to things like any car racing and like Formula One and stuff. Yeah. Like that. Even go car in is crazy money. But you, you, the, the money what Lewis Hamilton's parents spent, you know, just to get him into into Formula One and every other, you know, driver. When you think about that in 
in motocross terms, it really is very, it's all relative. It's, you know, motocross is very yeah. cheap compared to um, mm-hmm. other motors. So I, I think WSX, because they're willing to, um, what they say, as a, as a Tottenham fan, dare is to do. Um, so, you know, and that's, that's WSX, you know, they're, they're, they're daring to go out to some of these countries and take it global. I fully respect that. And I, and I do believe quite rightly that, um, you know, uh, us supercross will benefit from that because it's going to bring a whole new generation of fans. It, it, it should, it should. And it's kind of, it's, I mean, it's almost like this rivalry thing, but you know, I, I go back to like, in the first Godfather, the first movie, The Godfather, for Tom Hagen, the counselor, it, it, it is going, look, it's it's not personal. It's just business. And what's happened with this sort of, um, there's kind of this rivalry and this this thing that's happening with World Supercross being a, an, 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 an authentic, official FIM World Championship. Okay? That's a threat because you're going to, take athletes away from the racing here in America. You know, one thing I think that's resonated kind of weird for some people, and I get a lot of feedback on this is with um, the racing in America calling the super motocross, a world championship and people on the GP circuit or people in other outside of America, we think everything revolves around us, but outside of America, they're going, wait, this, how is this a world championship? And you're going, well, they're, that's what they're calling it. That's that's their deal, but don't take it personally. It's just business. Everyone's mm-hmm. trying to do the best business they can and make their entity and their championship the biggest thing that it can be. And so far in America, they you know for for the American riders, thankfully they've they've added some purse and some money to the to the kitty that that is pretty significant. And it got to be honest with you, I'm kind of pissed off because in my day. It would have been a hundred thousand. Now it's a million. So yeah. now I'm a little past my prime. Probably no chance I can get out there and make any of that, you know, rake in that cake. But uh, but for the current current guys, uh, it's a pretty cool situation. And with World Supercross, there's hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, up for grabs that these riders can make. And it, 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 the 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 last thing about this is that I truly believe that. Uh, um, you're going to see there be an, another sort of option or another branch, another split of riders like Hurlings and Cairoli, Everts. They all they have the opportunity to come ride Supercross in America. For whatever reason, that wasn't their choice, right? They want to stay and they want to ride motocross. I love riding sand. I love riding these hard pack tracks. Whatever the case, that's where their career path took them there. Other riders, Chad Reed and Muscan, I want to go ride Supercross. Okay. So you're going to see the sort of fracture where there's just two separate branches, two growth in, in separate areas, and that you'll have riders that want to ride motocross. Great. It's going to be competitive, right? And then you're going to have riders that I don't want to do motocross. I just want to ride Supercross. And so that's going to be competitive. The riders will fill the gaps of the competition. It will, every, I'm convinced that we will, for every rider that chooses to do one or the other, the next, it's going to backfill with talent 
right back in there. You're not going to be like, okay, this guy wants to ride Supercross and nobody else back to 20th. No, somebody's going to get second. Somebody's going to get third. And somebody's going to rise to that occasion. We're just going to have, have different branches of the sport. And that's good for everyone because more championships, more competitions means more opportunities for riders. It's that simple. Yeah. Yeah. I, I believe it. I believe it. And like I said, it's this, this competitive, you know, business that's happening between America and, and uh, Supercross global. It's natural. It's all part of it. It's part of doing business, you know, and, and the person that does the best business will, um, you know, have the best uh, reward. Right, good. Ed, uh, have you got any more questions for Jeff or are we going to let him go? Because uh, what's the time in uh, California at the moment, Jeff? It's a little past two in the afternoon. I got to pick up my dog at the vet. So we're running late. <laughs> Sorry, mate. Yeah, no, thanks again for taking the time. And yeah, we definitely love to chat again. Could chat forever with you, mate. It's bloody good stuff here. So we didn't even really touch on the soccer too much. So we'll definitely do it again at some point, mate. But thank See? you for your time. And yeah, we called it soccer. He's not a. Oh, well, come come on. Uh, you know, the amount of times in Australia you got Aussie rules, you got rugby, and everyone's there trying to go. call it football. So I've got to, got to try and keep it happy. Same with you at the end. Yeah, of don't this, even, but... don't even get me started on that Aussie stuff. I don't even know. Throwing a watermelon around, no helmet. I don't know. Watermelon. Yeah, that was right, an awesome hey. podcast, mate. All the best, and yeah, we'll speak soon. Yeah, I appreciate. It. I know this one's gone. You know, we're ninety minutes or a little more. Uh, appreciate everybody that listened in and hopefully uh, add a little bit of insight, some entertainment, no real tears, didn't really tug on the heartstrings too much this podcast, but hopefully we just entertained you and you learned a little something. Hey, this yeah, is just time. episode one. Jeff, we'll be back for more. Yeah, part one. <laughs> All, right, All right. See you guys. Thank you. See you, mate. Have a good one. See you later.